You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Happy 2018. This is the first podcast that I'm publishing in 2018. A little bit late. I usually do one every week and I don't know, it's like the 9th or the 10th of January. Um, I should say things like I've been doing lots of stuff and I've been really busy and I've been working really hard, but the truth is, is that I just took some time off. haven't done much other than watch a lot of 80s films, actually. Um, for some reason, we decided that um, this holiday we'd watch a bunch of old films and we've been through all four or five of the Die Hard movies, we've been through all three I think of the Jurassic Park movies, the Goonies, all of the Lethal Weapons, Never Ending Story um, and lots more. I think we started on all the Arnold Schwarzenegger films as well. So yeah, um, haven't been working that hard actually, been sitting down and watching a load of films, loved it. Um, but back to 2018 and what's going on right now. Yesterday I spoke to Dr. Laura Hill and you're going to hear the conversation that I had with her. Now, if you remember, I did a podcast with Dr. Laura Hill, probably the middle of last year, maybe the beginning of last year, um, neuroscience behind um, anorexia. So if you haven't listened to that one, just take yourself back in the podcast archives and have a listen because we get into some really amazing things in that podcast. And um, if you don't know who Dr. Laura Hill is, then, well, you should. <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, she's just kind of a big deal, I guess. She was one of, well, I know she was one of the original founders of AED um, a while back, um, and she's also been the director of NIDA. Uh, she's won a ton of awards. Um, she, it was, or was until just recently, the um, president and CEO of the Center for Balanced Living. Um, but now, well, she's going to tell you about it in this podcast, but she's moving on to do great things. So she's no longer the president and CEO of Centre of Balanced Living. She's kind of doing her own thing, consulting, which is fabulous. Um, Laura more recently has published a book um, called A Brain-Based Approach to Eating Disorder Treatment. And I think that that was released last year, late last year, around September. So I will link to that in the show notes as well, because especially for... Um, Anybody listening who treats eating disorders or a professional in the field, you probably want to read that. All right, guys, here's my conversation with Laura. We're talking about motivation to change, but not in the way that you think we will. Here is Dr. Laura Hill on the subject of motivation in anorexia recovery. Being unmotivated has always been connected to the eating disorder client. Um, certainly whole motivational approaches have been developed. Um, Josie Geller's work is all around um, motivational treatment training and um, helping clinicians help clients move into a more motivated state because the resistance is so high. Um, what I think is so interesting is the more we've been developing our and learning to understand the brain basis of anorexia and bulimia and binge eating, motivation from the clients has only risen. And in fact, um, as soon as we start sharing information, just from an educational perspective, um, the clients are quite motivated. They see why it's hard to change. They see how difficult it is to change. And at the same time, they're very willing and wanting to change. 
Um, and the interesting thing that I think is starting to just starting to rise as the new treatment approach, not just ours, but others in, in the brain basis, is having some resistance, um, just hesitations from clinicians. Um, and so suddenly the ball has shifted from the client not being motivated to the clinician not being motivated. Ooh, yeah, well, so that's interesting. <laughs> um, okay, let's dig into that. Okay, and so what I think it might be happening is that um, clinicians have traditionally been trained in various psychotherapies, such as cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavioral enhanced, uh, interpersonal therapy, family therapies, um, um, you know, a, a commitment therapies. It, they've all been trained in working with that in dialectical behavioral therapies. Um, and so though most of those are very process, some psychoeducational, but it's very general, and approach um, illnesses from a, a general a general um, procedure, a general paradigm. Uh, as we look at the brain basis of eating disorders, the opposite is is being needed. You're, we're needing a whole new language to understand what's going on in the brain. So one needs to learn about the brain. One needs to even learn the parts of the brain just to be able to gain an appreciation. And many cl clinicians are very hesitant because they don't they're not sure if they can pronounce the words or why should I have to learn these areas of the brain what what does this have to do with treatment and so the new language is difficult and they never necessarily came into treatment with that expectation or approach um, and then a, a new paradigm in the sense of it's looking at the biology and the brain basis as the the foundation in other words the clinicians have established um, uh, what's on the table. The table holds um, ICAT, it holds um, CBT, cognitive behavioral, it holds the different therapies, dialectical behavioral. They're all sitting on the table and they're going, I have my, my approaches to treatment for eating disorders and they're very evidence-based. The issue is the table is the brain basis. And if they're not recognizing the table, then their treatments have less meaning and don't have the aren't sitting on the foundation upon which they can have greater value. And the table has never really been there. Um, and it's just taking its formation and it's with every study that's coming out, it increasingly validates that the table is the foundation. And so the reality is clinicians have have to recognize that maybe they have to shift in how they're going to look at eating disorders. And if they're not the individual who has or wants the skill set to understand the neurobiology, then they need to be working with a team member that does. As we always said in treatment, um, tr uh, eating disorders are biopsychosocial. Well, the bio has always been looking at the medical complications that go awry when the illness has progressed. Really, the illness um, is a brain biopsychosocial, and um, and the brain is a uh, 
is founded upon which the psychotherapies can then really make a difference and have more uh, impact. And um, certainly the nutritional needs to be in there and the family work needs to be in there. But the table needs to be brought into the therapeutic room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I've often, especially this past year, wondered a lot. It's like, it's that... Um, is is therapy and traditional therapy the way that we think of therapy, like CBT, all of the things that you just listed, is that actually um, the best immediate referral for a person who has a diagnosis of anorexia? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, um, for an example, uh, Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, who is, a, she's, I think, one of the only doctors, internists that specifically and focuses and only treats eating disorders and with all of the and she also has a team with with um, nutritionists dietitians um, therapists on that team and so there's a very bout boutique sort of way of looking at it but with all of the medical complications that arise with anorexia I often think well that's actually way safer in my opinion that a doctor is is at the at the center of this and able to actually um, help with the medical complications, and so it makes me wonder: well, why, why, uh, why are we still referring um, straight to therapists when some therapists don't have the skills and haven't been trained in the skills? And that's not their fault necessarily, because maybe they didn't go into psychotherapy or CBT because they wanted to be dealing with biological and and, and very neurological concepts. I think that's. Ex I think you just hit the nail on the head by saying that, um, and. And graduate schools teach, even today, eating disorders as a part of all the psychotherapies and the psychopathologies. And I would say in the next five years, graduate schools are going to start transforming their approaches as the mapping of the brain takes increasingly um, becomes increasingly clearer or dynamics and pathways of the brain start establishing what illnesses have in common. In fact, the new work is showing that the brain mapping is not um, aligning with the DSM. And so the DSM is going to deteriorate and the brain mapping and looking at the neuropathways is going to rise. And I think in the next generation of clinicians, we're going to have clinicians who want to go into an eating disorder, which is a very brain-based approach illness. They're going to go in with the intent and understanding that they're going to be trained in that way. And the depressions and the anxieties will definitely take on some brain basis and will probably be handled by the physicians in those treatment groups. But at the same time, those that uh, are as complex, which anorexia is much more complex than the depressions, um, even I think as it's um, firing in the brain. And to understand those complexities is going to be critical. So the specialization um, of um, eating disorders is going to be just like a going to a, a pulmonologist or a hematologist. We're going to have to have specialists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because also I think the importance there, especially and even specialists in, in terms of, you know, um, the type of eating disorder, because, you know, the importance of talking and understanding a person with anorexia and how that brain works. And I think that um, 
everybody everybody that works in the eating disorder field, whether they're a dietitian or a therapist or a doctor, they're doing their best. But also, if that dietitian spends 95% of their day um, talking to people about healthy eating, and because that's what they've been trained to do, yes. it's very difficult to switch and, and talk to somebody about uh, who has anorexia, I think. <laughs> And I, th I think you are, again, hitting the nail on the head because I know at the Center for Balanced Living, the dietary team, when, th when, when new dietitians come on, they're saying, we want to come here because we want to be trained in a specialized area and we have been trained much more generalized. And the more I'm uh, realizing what is happening in the brain for those with anorexia, um, one way I started thinking about it is, like right now, I can see you. You're the full picture, your face, your, uh, against your window and background, your curtains. I can see all of this picture. And I think this is the way the general psychologists or clinicians go after an illness. They see the whole picture and then they're making broad strokes. Okay, now we need to set up a goal. Now we need to do this. The issue is... The brain of those with anorexia, if I could take, if, if we could say the picture is in pixels, like um, on your TV, and I could eliminate most of the pixels, and I only see, let's say, one, a couple dots of your curtains and a t couple dots on your forehead and, and nose and, and mouth and uh, of the room, and I'm sitting here, and I'm hearing somebody talk to me about this picture that I can only see some dots of, nothing about what they're saying is making sense. And the brain of those with anorexia does not process the bigger broad strokes. But if the specialist comes in and says, are you experiencing something? And then they hone in on one specific fact or issue and then help with the, each fact, bring it together and bring the dots to create the full face. Then suddenly now I understand and I'm excited to be a part of this discovery process because you're talking my language and we have to talk the language that the brain fires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think that, um, just in in when somebody is talking that language, it's it's that understanding that makes you well, it makes you trust them. And oh, they get this. They're not just sitting there telling me to eat this and that and have no idea what's going on in my head yes. at the moment. And there goes the motivation. So what has helped me move forward, Tabitha, and the irony of it, which and I never expected it, is as the research has drawn me forward in the brain basis, and the clients energy, excitement, enthusiasm has kept me going and validated and going, this is so true for me. I never dreamed the clinicians would be the ones that would be more hesitant. And that's funny, because like, that would have been my first thought. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what I'm experiencing is, it's like an Oreo. The research and the clients are very much in line, and the filling has got to get in line, and um, the clinicians recognizing and is it going to take a whole generation of clinicians certainly it's going to need to start by having the graduate schools shift in their trainings because the center for balanced living is doing residency trainings now um, for three different hospitals in central ohio to assure that the psychiatrists and the family practice docs are really understanding the brain basis 
every one of them, psychiatry, psychology fellows, uh, physician fellows that are general physicians, every one of them said the way we've been trained in eating disorders is looking at the DSM-5 diagnosis. And that's it. That's sad and that is so inadequate. And so that has got to change so that the clients can increasingly feel that their needs are being met. And the irony is um, my, my work is now shifting to start training professionals in eating disorders that are wanting to understand and look at how to treat and integrate brain-based ideas into their own treatment. Um, the pilot that I offered in uh, November uh, to do a professional training, uh, one clinician came from uh, Washington State and said, I'm here only because my clients have purchased your new textbook and said, this is what my illness is about. Now go get trained in it so you can help me. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that it's great when, when clinicians are willing to learn. Um, I yeah, think that, that some of the problem, though, is, is that some clinicians aren't that willing to learn, um, which is fine, but then don't treat eating disorders, please. That is so, so, so true. And so on one level, I think we are literally, the sun is just rising and the light is starting to come through for understanding and bringing brain basis and the table into the therapeutic room. And so we want it now. We want, the, we want it for every clinician now. And my hope, my hope would be that within five years, we are... 50 to 500 times better at um, getting that word out because it's going to continue to ripple as one clinician trains other clinicians trains others or one site gets trained and then they're training others. So just as it's taken many years for CBT or DBT to get disseminated, I think brain-based treatment for eating disorders is at its sunrise. I love how the, the motivation to change topic actually ended up focusing on the clinicians because that's, that's something we, well, sufferers of anorexia especially get told all the time, you're not motivated, you're not motivated. Yes. And um, I, always say, I, I, I um, always say to people, email me and say, oh, you know, how do I find the motivation to recover? I'm like, well, if you've been reading my website, then I'd say you're pretty motivated to recover because, you know, it's not exactly... <laughs> It's not exactly Netflix, is it? It's you know, it's like you're sitting there spending your free time reading about anorexia recovery. So I think you're pretty motivated. I don't think it's actually a motivation problem as much as it is a fear problem. And the the issue goes back to what you were saying. If if the clinician is not um, approaching the client in the in the language or the detail and the 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 approach that the that really validates what the client is experiencing and only telling them what they need to do to change and give up, um, it makes no sense why any client would trust that. Right. And, yeah. and your, uh, your website is helping many with anorexia to get, um, to get those many facts and feel that motivation and try to find others who can help them with that. So, I think motivation is going to decline as the brain basis and also the new work in the microbiome of the gut is going to increase since the genetic studies are showing that this illness 
seems to have a brain uh, basis and a gut basis. And we're and I think it's um, the the microbiome or the microbiota is even newer than the brain basis. And there's so much that's coming down the pike. Hence, we're at sunrise. We're not even at ten o'clock or noon yet yeah. in the light. Yes. And um, I feel that some some therapists do feel slightly threatened by the genetic research, which fa- initially when I when I first um, read something along those lines, it just blew my mind and I couldn't understand. But I think now having looked into it, I, I understand it more. It sort of does threaten the art of um maybe a psychotherapy, is that the right way to put it? If if sure. it's genetic. So I think I can understand that now. Uh, you know, and I think, again, the genetics, uh, re- the genetic research is, is, again, challenging what clinicians have been experiencing and been trained in, in their treatment um, approaches and understanding the illness. For decades, um, and I think it's still being approached in graduate schools. When you look at illnesses and you look at temperament, you look at the pathology of the temperament. Um, you look at abnormal psychology. You don't look at normal psychology. And, um, and as a result, when we see clients, we're always looking at, well, that, that's a trait basis. That's an issue. That's a personality disorder, which was what was labeled up through DSM-4R. Um, the issue is the temperament the, and the genetic predisposition of those that may be vulnerable for anorexia are the genetic expressions that may have a... Um, destructive or frustrating or, um, you know, um, a, an impact that isn't helpful to one's life. But it is those, ve- it is those very traits, those very traits are the same traits that have to be the traits that fundamentally manage your life at a healthy level. It's not like we've always been trained to get rid of the treatments or the symptoms We've always been trained that you you need to stop binging, you need to stop uh, starving, you need to stop so stop the symptoms. But for treating eating disorders, we've got to look at the traits, and whether it's a stubborn trait, whether it's an avoidant trait, whether it's an overly anxious trait, it's those traits that are in fact both the the things that may be one's demise and the very ingredients of one's success. I would tell a client, I never want to give up your stubbornness. It is going to be your stubbornness that's going to be part of your success. And it's what gets um, kingdoms um, developed. It's what builds a strong body. It's what gets a business that everybody says could never be done. It's what gets it done. And so we do not give up the tr- uh, the genetic um, profile. We only learn to carve it out. I think of Michelangelo, and he carved in marble. And that's I think of traits as marble. And so it's like when we chisel away, you may start with an eating disorder that looks so rough and so uh, roughly hewn, and we start chiseling at it. 
and the potential of what it becomes as the person becomes stronger and more in control of managing with the support of others uh, that illness, that is how genes are critically necessary to be brought into the therapeutic scene so that the client doesn't feel like a constant failure. They've got to be recognizing their own ingredients to mm-hmm. carve out their change. Yeah, I think that it's so important to to remember who you are. Um, what re- I m- remember what really helped me in recovery was remembering well, if I look at all everything, everything I I did or set my mind to do, I would do. You know, yeah. like if I if I had an exam, I I get it done. I was uh, somebody that got something done, and then it occurred to me one day that I've been trying to recover for ten years, and I was just like, "This isn't me. This is not who I am." And remembering that really helped me be like, "I am someone who gets shit done. I'm gonna do this," and I did. Oh, Tabitha, there. So, I mean, that determination. That is a genetic tendency, and that stubbornness, that 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 will to push forward, um, I would, you know, that is the very that is your essence, and that is genetically ingrained. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason why I love working with people with eating disorders. I yeah. think of eating disorders as the two percent club. You can be the two percent worse and the two percent best. Yeah, for sure. I, I've never. It's really, really damn smart people. And I think that that's one of the um, tragedies of what happens when when people who are really smart get disempowered in their own recovery process. Oh, isn't that the and told, truth? You know, that they are made to feel like they don't know how to do it when it's like, you, you're a smart person. You will work this out. And that... You know, um, as I was just learning and putting some of that information together, I have permission to share this uh, story um, with you of a client who I worked with um, in the late 90s, which I was working with her and her anorexia um, in the traditional ways that I had been trained and uh, was trying to help her through and guide her through. And she was working so hard and following every instruction and every bit, but the distress she could, uh, one of her um, traits is um, tendency to see errors over her successes. And she would always, you know, well, this didn't work, but you did 99%, but this didn't work. Well, the more I began to read and work with the UC San Diego team to learn about the genetic tendencies the and the brain basis of the illness and looking at the temperament more and more um, she, this client was in the early 2000s finishing her undergrad went followed the track of her mother to become a teacher she did she got a straight four point in undergraduate school walked into the classroom and did terribly because it was nothing but open-ended questions she wasn't sure what to do if she did something she doubted it because she could all see what was going awry and within the end of the year of her first year of teaching she was fired they said, you cannot, you are not equipped to do this. And she was horrified. She was, you know, and it was, I felt terrible with her. And so deep depression set in. And as we were working through that, and I'm learning this new information, I said to her, I need to try this out. And so I would come back after um, working with the team at UC San Diego and come back and say, it looks like, 
this might not be firing in the brain. So it looks like you may not be able to tell when you're hungry or full. She said, that's exactly right. Well, I had never even thought to ask those kinds of medical details. Well, the more I tested out things that the research was showing on her and asking if that was true, I'm seeing her wake up, be motivated. And so then I said, you know, I don't know if you're willing to do this at all, but as I am learning your temperamental profile and seeing how this fits with your illness, it seems to me that you think in such detail a career not in teaching, but maybe in technology would be so much better. And so she went back, bless her heart, and got a, a second master's and got it in computer science, was then hired by a to be an intern at this major company. And she began to um, be assigned a team to work out computer programming and was quickly shifted because she would come to sessions and she goes, well, it's just so easy. At times I almost get bored. I need three or four assignments just to keep me going. And she advanced to, I long worked myself out of a job with her. She remained stable. And she came back at one point and said, just want you to know, I got a new promotion and I'm now over detecting all the errors in the major computer programs. And she goes, that's my theme. I detect errors in my life and I now do it in my work and it feels so natural. And I thought, fantastic. Talk about taking your traits and making them for you. Do what you do. That's exactly it. Yeah. Do what you do. I wish it was more obvious to everyone um, to work with people that way. Uh, um, when I think, I know I was growing up with the research uh, since 2000, but here it is 2018. And at 2000 is when I was beginning those discussions with her. And I find myself thinking, Tabitha, it's taken me 18 years to you know, the book just got published last year to bring a new brain-based approach to treatment providers. And we are just been, we've been working out ways to help others integrate it into their treatments. I'm just thinking it took me 18 years. I only want it to take others 18 weeks. I don't want them to have to go through what we had to go through. And um, so we are working to even approach graduate faculty to see if they could even use the material to start teaching new um, um, approaches from a brain basis in their graduate classes. Fabulous. Thank you. You are so welcome. (laughs) I feel honored. And I have to say, it is, it is you, the, it's all the clients. It, you you know what works and what doesn't and as a result as long as we are following what is true for you we will find the best answers and and biology is only validating what you've been saying all along thank you to dr laura hill for taking the time to talk to me you know um something i always think when i when i finished talking to um Dr. Hill is, well, first of all, I always think, well, what a bloody lovely lady she is. But it's always also reminds me of how much she listens to the people that she works with, um, which seems revolutionary, really. But as I said, I wish that all doctors could work that way, actually really listening to the people with whom they are working and using that alongside the science 
to learn and discover and explore. Which must make it quite fascinating, actually. So much more interesting than just following some rules that you read in a book and applying it to everybody and expecting them all to fit into a nice little cookie-cutter hole of recovery. It must be so much more interesting to actually listen to all of these people whom you're working with and use their information and their experience to further your own knowledge and research. Pretty cool, really. I will link you up with more information on Dr. Hill and the books that she's written in the show notes to this episode, so you can find out more about her there. It's going to be a good year, folks. Get in touch if you have any um, people that you'd like me to interview or podcast ideas. You can email me at info at You can tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.